Hello my friends, welcome back to Unshaken. I'm Jared Halverson and I've got a quick update for you. Some have been wondering what's taking so long in making the transition uh, to the collaboration that Faith Matters and I are working on. Well, the Faith Matters team is still working on the space and I'm still working on shortening these lessons as you've all been able to tell. Uh, it's, a, it's a battle between my head and my heart and I'm having a hard time proving these contraries. My head keeps telling me, you have to shorten these for your own sanity's sake. Uh, you don't have time to do this. Uh, you, it's been years since you have, but I've been pushing through. Uh, this semester has been crazy, uh, trying to balance everything and juggle things. It's going to be a great relief, honestly to be able to do shorter lessons. That's my head. But my heart is saying, you've got to give them more than, than a quick summary. Uh, there is so much material here that we haven't gone verse by verse in. And even with the amount of water skiing that we're doing, there's still so much material that I just, I feel constrained to make sure that we understand. Uh, my fear is that scripture that we don't understand is scripture that we don't appreciate. And if we don't appreciate it, uh, then we won't, it won't have the converting persuasive power, like uh, Nephi said about Isaiah. It won't be able to persuade us to come unto the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. If we don't understand that this invitation is extended to us all, and, is, and these scriptural writers are pleading with us to understand what they are trying to convey. If it took so much effort on their part to engrave on these metal plates, the least we can do is give similar effort in coaxing their meaning off the pages before us. So today is 2 Nephi 6 through 10. A lot of material here. It starts with Isaiah. We've got basically three chapters of Isaiah and then two chapters of Jacob. And it's, it's absolutely incredible what Jacob is trying to convey. Uh, we need to slow down and, and make sure we understand the Isaiah portion as well as the, the Jacob portion because they're related, but it's so hard to tell. Uh, what Jacob sees in Isaiah is so far beyond what we typically can, can perceive there. In, in some ways, if chapter 9 were to start with, and thus we see, you'd think, wait, what? This is what you're seeing in Isaiah? Uh, you've got an incredible vision, far beyond anything that I can muster. Uh, it's in some ways this incredible mashup, this fusion of Old Testament scripture and New Testament doctrine that comes together in chapter 9 in an incredible way. And, and we need to understand it. In, I'll give you a quick story and then we'll dive in. Uh, when I was at Divinity School, and I've shared this story with some of you in the past, but when I was in divinity school, the, the, I was waiting for a class to start, and there were only three students as we waited for the rest of the students and the professor to show up. It was me, a Catholic, and a Protestant. Yes, this sounds like a good joke beginning. Uh, well, as we were sitting there, the Catholic turns to me and says, Jared, you're a Latter-day Saint, Mormon, as we were called. Uh, where do you guys fit in? Because you're not Catholic, so does that make you Protestant? And then the Protestant chimes in, it's like, whoa, 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 he's not with us, okay? We, 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 don't, we don't claim them. And I just kind of chuckled and I said, yeah, uh, I'll put it bluntly. If you two got married and had a kid, it would be me. And they looked at each other and like, huh, we don't even like each other. It's like, well, yeah, I know. Martin Luther, Reformation, I get it. But there is a high liturgy in Catholicism and a low liturgy in so much of Protestantism. And combine the two and it's the restored gospel of Jesus Christ. It's an amazing proving of the contraries between Catholicism and Protestantism. Protestants who join the church feel comfortable at church, but Catholics who join the church feel comfortable at the temple. Uh, there's those two halves coming together to make the whole. And then I said to them, you know, you could do the same thing with Judaism and Christianity. 
if a Jew and a Christian got married and had a child, it would also be a Mormon, a Latter-day Saint. Because there is an Old Testament side of us and, and a New Testament side of us. Joseph Smith's project was to restore not just New Testament Christianity, but the Old Testament house of Israel as well. That's why we have prophets, Old Testament, and apostles, New Testament. It's why we build temples, Old Testament, and chapels, New Testament. It's why we have patriarchal blessings, Old Testament, and gifts of the Spirit, New Testament. It's why we're both the house of Israel and the body of Christ. And we are going to see a magnificent fusion today when Jacob takes Old Testament scripture, straight off the brass plates, Isaiah, and then fuses it with his father's sermon from 2 Nephi chapter 2 that we studied a couple weeks ago, which is so much well, New Testament plan of salvation. And it's amazing what Jacob does. Remember, Jacob was Lehi's principal audience in chapter 2. And so he's learning Christian doctrine. He's learning where salvation comes from. Judaism is much more focused on the here and now, and Christianity seems to be much more focused on the there and then, in terms of future. Okay? Uh, we have kind of geography on one side and, and you know, spirituality on the other. That's not to say that there's no overlap, okay? Don't get me wrong. There's a Venn diagram, I suppose. But if you're trying to balance and prove these contraries, the, the Hebrew Bible, the Old Testament, Judaism, is much more focused on temporal salvation in the promised land. God will bless us there. Whereas Christian salvation is much more focused on, on the heavenly gift uh, and, and being able to be with God in his heavenly kingdom. And so there's this plan of salvation that gets us there. Uh, what we're going to see today is the, a fusion of the physical gathering, which the Jews appreciate, and a spiritual gathering to Christ, which the Christians appreciate. And what's happening then is when, when Jacob has learned the plan of salvation from Lehi back in 2 Nephi 2, and then he's assigned to, to teach some Isaiah verses from, by Lehi, excuse me, by Nephi today in chapter 6, He'll walk us through Isaiah in chapter 6 and 7 and 8, and then when he gets to 9 and 10 and it's his turn, he puts it all together and, and reinterprets Isaiah through the lens of the plan of salvation. He teaches, it's, it's wild, he teaches Isaiah with the help of Lehi, and somehow by putting the two together, something incredible results. Uh, it, and thus we see, oh, I hope we'll see it. Okay? Now that, for the most part, is going to be the second part of today's lesson. Now this one might take a little while, and we're going to need two halves. The first half, or the first part, it won't be fully half, but the first part we're going to study 2 Nephi 6, 7, and 8 to make sure we understand the Isaiah that Jacob is quoting. From there, uh, second part, we'll go 9 and 10, and chapter 9 is one of the great, great doctrinal chapters of the Book of Mormon. And, and the fusion that it provides us is, is breathtaking once you have the eyes to see. Okay? So keep your eyes open today. Endure to the end. Uh, make sure that you're around for both the first and the second parts. Uh, and by the time we're done, we will know things about physical and spiritual gatherings. We will know things about Messiah slash Christ. There's Old Testament, New Testament, referring to the same being. We will come to know Christ by the end of today, because today's material is the first time we see that name title in the Book of Mormon. Uh, these prophets are learning line upon line, precept upon precept, and hopefully we're learning right alongside them. Okay? 
So let's dive in and get to know Jacob a little bit more. What we've seen so far, we had a beautiful discussion about Jacob back in 2 Nephi 2 uh, to understand where his anxieties are coming from. And we're going to see some more anxiety today. But in 2 Nephi 2, he was audience. And in 2 Nephi 6, he is preacher. Uh, and so to see what he does with Scripture, rather than just listening to Dad explain it, the way he approaches the text and conveys its meaning to others is, is profound. So what we're seeing here in, in chapter 6, if you remember the end of First Nephi, Nephi said, I'm going to teach Isaiah that I might persuade you. Uh, I'm, going to, I'm going to quote Isaiah. He has a power to help convince you of the promises that come from God, and so I'm going to turn to him. And Nephi ends up quoting chapter 48 and 49 of Isaiah. Uh, he then explains it all in his own incredible way, and that's how 1 Nephi ends. Okay? That's chapter 20, 21, and then his 22 is his explanation. Now, that came right on the heels of, them, of, his, of the Lehite colony leaving the old world and finally arriving at the new. And with that, as we talked about in that lesson, it's official that the scattering has been accomplished. Uh, we're in a whole new hemisphere, and there's no going back. And so this branch that has been cut off, oh, it's not just being, oh, the twig isn't just being bent somewhere. It has been cut off and transplanted in a completely different part of the vineyard. And so with, with his family feeling officially scattered, what does, Isaiah, what does Nephi do? He turns to Isaiah to reassure them that there will be a gathering, a very personal, a, a powerful, a, a kind-hearted, tender, merciful gathering that God has promised us. We are not cut off forever. Okay. Uh, among those verses, by the way, he focused somewhat on the, the role of the Gentiles that will perform the great gathering work for the house of Israel. By gathering Israel, the Gentiles get gathered into the covenant themselves. That's their only hope, okay? They get gathered by gathering the people that are supposed to be gathered. Does that make sense? And, and one of the verses that stood out to Nephi, evidently, was Isaiah's promise that the Gentiles would come and scoop up scattered Israel and carry them home in their arms, carry them home on their shoulders, Remember that story I told you, told you of my little girl that would just look up when she was little and just stick her arms out and go, Shotos. And that was the signal, Dad, I want to be carried on your shoulders. Well, Isaiah quotes that beautiful promise that kings will be their nursing fathers and queens their nursing mothers and scoop them up and gather them to their bosom and put them on their shotos and bring them home to Zion. That's our role, fellow Gentiles, to gather scattered Israel everywhere we can find them. Now, that verse meant every, those verses meant everything to Nephi as he was reassuring his family, we haven't been cut off. But what's interesting is what just happened last week, 2 Nephi chapter 5, we see the final split between Nephi and Laman, never again to be reconciled. Uh, and thus the beginning of the Nephites versus Lamanites that will characterize the rest of the Book of Mormon history. Well, you've just, and, and remember, it was Nephi and those that would follow God in following him that separated from the Lamanites. The Lamanites didn't leave. The Nephites did. And thus they felt scattered for a second time. Again, this is geographic displacement, uh, social displacement. They just got cut off from their family. These are brothers and cousins that are now separating. 
And there is a spiritual sense of displacement as well, that we're leaving the land of our first inheritance in this newfound land of promise. Well, it's a later generation than the, the, than the group that first arrived there. And so an older Nephi turns to a younger Jacob and says, it's time to repeat an old talk I gave. Uh, when I was young, I spoke at general conference in our first conference session in the new world, and I quoted Isaiah and taught from him. It's a new scattering, a new generation, and a new opportunity to dust off an old talk. But this time I want you to give it, Jacob. Uh, you who have been a, a son of the scattering yourself, you never knew the old world. You who cares so much about the people and whose heart has truly been broken twice. Once by the rudeness of your older brothers, but second, when you were torn away from them. It was hard to live with them. It's hard to live away from them. And since you have felt that emotional, spiritual scattering, for your sake and for theirs, will you go back to the same Isaiah passage I taught a generation ago? after the first scattering, and teach it again after this second one. That is the context of 2 Nephi 6. And notice what Jacob does with it. It's amazing. Let's start with verse 2. Behold, my beloved brethren. And Jacob uses that phrase constantly, by the way. He had such deep feelings for everything, but especially for his own people. So keep an eye out for that phrase. My beloved brethren. I, Jacob... And here he's going to establish his authority to speak. Uh, in terms of the Aristotelian appeals for rhetoric, this would be his ethos, okay? The authority of the speaker. I, Jacob, having been called of God, I'm not doing this because I want to, I'm doing it because he's called me to, and ordained after the manner of his holy order. We saw that last week in chapter 5. He, is a, he and, jo and Joseph are teachers and priests. So called, ordained, and having been consecrated by my brother Nephi, unto whom ye look as a king or a protector, and on whom ye depend for safety, behold, ye know that I have spoken unto you exceedingly many things. There's Jacob's ethos. There's his authority as a speaker. I am here because God has commanded me to come. Uh, believe me, as one who's over-anxious in my callings, one who struggles with a certain degree of what I call pastoral perfectionism, uh, the, the sense of inadequacy, and I've got to measure up to divine expectations, but I sense my own inadequacy, and there's this massive gulf and gap between the two that can only be filled by grace. Oh, I'm praying for that grace to come upon us all. I'm, I'm here to teach you something absolutely important. In verse 3, having just said, I spoke many things unto you, exceedingly many. By the way, I wish we had all those. Uh, if we get any sense today of the power of Jacob's preaching, man, I start to salivate with the phrase we saw at the end of verse 2. You've, you've already taught exceedingly many things. How come this is the first chance we have to hear from you? Ah, the 100th part frustrates me on occasion. I want the other 99 pieces. Well, verse 3, nevertheless, I speak unto you again. For I am desirous for the welfare of your souls. There's no greater motivation than that. I'm not doing this to be seen of man. I'm not doing this out of mere duty, though you sense that duty in verse 2. This is out of love, the highest and noblest of motivations. I'm desirous for the welfare of your souls. Now, he may have taken that a little too far, as you see in the next phrase. Yea, mine anxiety... 
and remember, no Book of Mormon prophet uses that word more often than Jacob, mine anxiety is great for you. And ye yourselves know that it ever has been. Oh, there's a lot. There's pathos here. It's own, his own feeling. It's, I've always worried about you. I've worried about myself. If I'll measure up, I've worried about you. If you'll measure up, there's those two are related. Will I be able to measure up enough to help you measure up since I'm one of your priesthood leaders? Well, I've always been anxious over you. For I have exhorted you with all diligence. And I have taught you the words of my father. Remember, what he's going to teach today in 2 Nephi 9 is an outgrowth of what he learned from Lehi in 2 Nephi 2. So yes, I've taught you those words. I'm going to do it again today with the help of Isaiah. And I have spoken unto you concerning all things which are written from the creation of the world. And that's what he found on the brass plates. So again, this is going to be the fusion I described at the beginning of the lesson today. I'm going to take what Dad taught in 2 Nephi 2. I'm going to take that which is written on the brass plates, namely Isaiah 49 and 50 and 51 and a little 52, and mash them together in a way where the, to the new sum or the new total is greater than the sum of its parts. Uh, it's going to be incredible when these two atoms form a new molecule. <laughs> you science majors out there. Well, verse 4, Now behold, I would speak unto you concerning things which are, and which are to come. So, present and future. We're not going to worry about the past here. The past is painful as far as they're concerned. But the present, we're now in a new, new land. Okay, so a second scattering. This is where we are. But where will we end up being? I want you to sense the future and embrace it with hope. That's what will help you get through an anxious present. Okay? But to do that, to teach things which are and which are to come, wherefore I will read you the words of Isaiah. That's interesting. That lets us know that Isaiah, as far as Jacob's concerned, deals with the present and the future. There are layers of Isaiah and multiple fulfillments of his prophecy. So he's speaking to our current circumstance and he's speaking to future circumstances. So keep Isaiah in mind throughout, throughout the, the time periods. Now, Jacob says, They are the words which my brother, that's Nephi, has desired that I should speak unto you. So what we're seeing there is, well, we've heard, we've heard this in the past, that nobody gets assigned general conference talks. You pray and find out the Lord's will, and, well, I guess the Lord assigns them then. <laughs> but, but the prophet isn't telling you what to speak about. Now, President Nelson has, has altered that uh, order of affairs a few times when he said, Oh, Elder so-and-so, explain why we're going to two-hour church. Elder so-and-so, explain why we're going to go from home teaching to ministering. Uh, and so sometimes those, uh, those are assigned, and that's the case here. Nephi has assigned Jacob to speak about a particular passage from Isaiah. And as Jacob puts it, I speak unto you for your sakes that you may learn and glorify the name of your God. I love that purpose in quoting Isaiah, in studying him. I, from, with Isaiah's help, I'm going to learn. But with Isaiah's help, I'm going to glorify God. That's the persuasive power of his poetry. Remember, Nephi is glory in plainness. Now, he's the prose prophet. And, and Isaiah will be far more poetic far more symbolic, far less plain, that's the bad news, but far more persuasive, that's the good news. Jacob, by the way, is a beautiful combination of the 
Oh, the clarity and purpose of a Nephi coupled with the emotion and imagery of, of an Isaiah. Uh, Jacob, it just his own emotional makeup seems to be a beautiful combination of the two. So what are we going to, what are we going to study, Jacob? What do you want to teach us? Now, verse five, we're going to start to see what it is, but I need to give you a heads up because this is going to help us oh, next week and the next, and the next, what is it? No, two, next two weeks. That's it. The next two weeks, we're going to be studying Isaiah in the Book of Mormon, the major Isaiah chapters that everybody seems to trip up over. So come back for more. But they always, I'll put it this way, Isaiah in the Book of Mormon always begins with a pump-up speech and ends with an explanation. So there's encouragement on the front end, and there's, let me help you make sense of what we just did on the back end. Every Book of Mormon prophet knows Isaiah is hard, or at least will be for us, modern readers. And so rather than just plunk it out there, there's always a, at least a few words of, here's why I'm doing it. Trust me, it's going to be worth it. And then when you emerge on the other side, well, hopefully you emerge, and when you get there, it's like, okay, you look a little beaten and bruised. Let me walk you through what I just walked you through. Okay? We saw that at the end of 1 Nephi. How does chapter 19 end? Here's Isaiah. This is what I'm going to do. It's persuasive power. It's to give you hope. So liken it unto yourself, and it'll be profitable, and, and you'll learn. Then he gives you chapter 19, uh, 20 and 21, and then 22, which is Isaiah, and then 22, here's the explanation. We see the same thing here. He, gonna, he just pumped us up a little bit with, uh, this is why I'm quoting Isaiah. It's so important. Then he's going to do it in 6, 7, 8, and then he's going to explain it in 9 and 10. You with me? Well, verse 5, And now the words which I shall read are they which Isaiah spake concerning all the house of Israel. That's his target audience, as well as his principal subject all the way through. Wherefore, Jacob says, they may be likened unto you, for ye are of the house of Israel. And there are many things which have been spoken by Isaiah, which may be likened unto you, because ye are of the house of Israel. Just like 1 Nephi 19.23, before Nephi quotes these verses, Nephi said, you've got to liken them. So they'll be for your profit and learning. Here again, Jacob is saying, Isaiah has to be likened. In fact, Isaiah will never be likable until he's likenable. And, and once we see that he's speaking to our circumstances, oh, not only will you like him, you'll love him and the approach that he takes. Okay, So let's liken this. Verse 6 and 7. Now these are the words. And based on the version of Isaiah we have before us, this is going to come from Isaiah 49, verse 22 and 23. They should ring some bells based on what Nephi taught us a generation ago. Thus saith the Lord God, Behold, I will lift up mine hand to the Gentiles. They're going to play a key role in all this. And set up my standard to the people, and they shall bring thy sons in their arms, and thy daughters shall be carried upon their shoulders. And kings shall be thy nursing fathers, and their queens thy nursing mothers. They shall bow down to thee with their faces toward the earth, and lick up the dust of thy feet. And thou shalt know that I am the Lord, for they shall not be ashamed that wait for me. Again, a personal gathering. Gentiles as nurturing and nursing parents. Shodus, please find me. Lift me, carry me home. Jacob 
having been an infant and young child during those wilderness wanderings and the crossing of the ocean to the new land, he would know what it felt like to be carried in the bosom, to be carried on the shoulders, to be concerned about where I'm going and hoping for nursing parents. You remember the miracle of nursing mothers in the wilderness having only raw meat to eat or the the struggle and trauma of, have, of not having a nursing mother on the ocean voyage when the storm hit at sea. Uh, interesting details that Jacob would have known personally, and so no one better to teach this symbolically than he. Well, Jacob's explanation, here's the, uh, the amazing irony, and again it's going to give us a little peek into Jacob's personality. Uh, which is fraught with pastoral perfectionism. <clears throat> Remember, if we're talking about toxic perfectionism in our life, no wonder that will cause us anxiety. There's scrupulosity. Will I ever measure up? Am I good enough? Uh, can I be forgiven of my sins? I'm not as perfect as I must be. Well, from a pastoral perspective, as one who has been called and, and consecrated and ordained to this office, oh, I feel so much anxiety for the welfare of your souls. And you get a glimpse of that here because he's assigned two verses by Nephi. That's it. Nephi already taught us all of 48 and all of Isaiah 49. And I wonder if he's taking some, well, pity or compassion upon his over-anxious younger brother and says, I'm not asking you to teach two full chapters of Isaiah like I did. Two verses will suffice, little brother. Focus on these ones. And please teach them from the pulpit of your own personal experience, the promise of the gathering of Israel. Well, Jacob, and again, here's his pastoral perfectionism. Uh, he's the only prophet, by the way, that uses the term magnify our calling. And boy, does he magnify it here. Because he takes two verses and expands them, not just to quote those two verses of Isaiah 49, but to finish Isaiah 49, and then quote 50, and then quote 51, and then quote the first two verses of 52, just as the cherry on top. And what ends up being a two and a half minute talk, like we used to give when youth or primary, now becomes a five chapter discourse that takes Oh, I think I did the math when I was looking up on, on the church website when you can do the audio version of Scripture. I think this one takes like 40, 45 minutes just to listen to. And so, Jacob, wow, yeah, you magnified your calling. I hope you're not over-anxious. No wonder you've spoken exceedingly many things in the past. You can't quit. I feel his pain. Believe me, I've got a little pastoral perfectionism myself, and I don't want to miss a single verse. And so Jacob's not going to miss a single verse either. And he's going to take us through the whole thing. Now, you'll notice in verse 8 that one of Jacob's sources, the Lord has shown me. And another one in verse 9, according to the words of the angel who spake it unto me. And so, well, speaking of, of ethos and the authority of the speaker, he, he has even higher authorities behind him. The Lord and an angel that have helped him make sense of these words from Isaiah. So, ancient prophet, the Lord himself, uh, an angel to help explain, and now, and, and then dad's uh, sermon on the plan of salvation from chapter 2, all woven together by Jacob himself into a master, a beautiful tapestry. 
Now, what Jacob's going to describe is the destruction of Jerusalem, the Babylonian captivity. Remember, they just barely missed the destruction of Jerusalem. Uh, the, the Jews were then taken, taken captive into Babylon. That's their own scattering. There had been a scattering by the Assyrians in the days of Isaiah, a century and a half earlier. Uh, then it's the Jerusalemites' turn to go to Babylon. Uh, it's the Lehites' uh, opportunity to come to the New World. Scatterings left and right. And then Jacob fast forwards to, to talk about the Holy One of Israel. He wants to get to Jesus as quickly as he can. Uh, and because that's going to be the source of the, of the gathering. So with all of these scatterings having taken place, uh, let's talk about the coming of the Holy One of Israel among the Jews. And he starts to describe what the ministry of Jesus Christ will look like, including being rejected by the Jews and crucified by them, uh, smitten and hated and so on, which is just like what happened to the house of Israel. Jesus himself will go through a certain type of scattering, being scattered from, by his own people, being rejected and cut off and sent to the cross and the tomb. How's that for scattering? He understands that. But it's, the, the beautiful irony is that scattering is what allows for the spiritual gathering that this whole plan of salvation revolves around. So with that in mind, start in verse 11 and notice what he says on the heels of what I just explained. They shall be scattered and smitten and hated. That's the consequence of having rejected Jesus Christ. Nevertheless, the Lord will be merciful unto them. Remember, this is a book about tender mercies. That when they shall come to the knowledge of their Redeemer, so they will get additional opportunities, second chances, and you didn't, you knew but would not know him when he came. Well, the day will come when you do know him. You'll come to the knowledge of their Redeemer. And when that day comes, they shall be gathered together again to the lands, plural, of their inheritance. Now, clearly in verse 11, then, you see a spiritual gathering that happens before the physical gathering. And that's an important detail. We'll see it repeated several times. I, I know that uh, the Western world and the, the Jewish world and the Christian world, for that matter, is thrilled about the state of Israel having been created post-World War II. And to have a Jewish homeland uh, where the house of Israel can literally gather back, that lit up Christian eyes that they're fulfilling prophecy. Or as evangelical Christians particularly would say, not just fulfilling prophecy, but oh, speeding it along. Can we, can we help jumpstart this thing? And we'll give the Jews a homeland to which they can gather. The Zionist movement will start to be fulfilled. Well, careful that we're not jumping the gun. Careful we're not getting ahead of ourselves because here it's the knowledge of their Redeemer, the spiritual gathering that facilitates and catalyzes the physical gathering. We become a Zion people before we become a Zion place. We learned that the hard way ourselves in our own church history, right? Well, they're going to need to be gathered, uh, but the Lord himself will be the one that does this gathering. Verse 14 Behold, according to the words of the prophet, the Messiah will set himself again the second time to recover them. He tried the first time and they didn't accept it. The second time he will again recover them. Wherefore, he will manifest himself unto them in power and great glory. 
unto the destruction of their enemies. When that day cometh, when they shall believe in him. And none will he destroy that believe in him. Now that verse describes the second coming, not the first. The first coming, he did not come in power and great glory. Think about the song by Parley P. Pratt, Jesus once of humble birth. And over and over in that verse, it compares first coming to second coming. Every other line, it switches back and forth. Jesus once of humble birth. That's the first coming. Now in glory comes to earth. There's the second coming. And so first time he comes as lamb. Second time he comes as lion. First time he is scattered. Second time he comes to gather. Because they have finally gathered to him spiritually. Then verse 15, they that believe not in him shall be destroyed, both by fire and by tempest and by earthquakes and by bloodsheds and by pestilence and by famine. There's Armageddon for you. There's the destruction of the last days like we saw in the book of Revelation last year. But the result, they shall know that the Lord is God, the Holy One of Israel. We've been told already that every knee shall bow and every tongue confess that Jesus is the Christ. Well, According to that verse, for those who do not choose to kneel, they will be brought to their knees. At some point, it will be painfully obvious, undeniably clear, that Jesus is who he said he was, who prophets have proclaimed him to be. Our, our goal is to, to come to that understanding before we're compelled to come to it, right? And Elder Maxwell taught that beautifully. If someday every knee will bow, why not now? Why not do it now when it will mean something? Because it will mean far less when you are compelled to acknowledge him during that collective confession, as Elder Maxwell put it. Jacob then quotes the rest of Isaiah chapter 49. Uh, beyond, like I said, everything that Nephi had intended or assigned for him. He talks about the prey of the mighty and the lawful captor, captives. Remember that when we talked about that uh, back in chapter 20, or ch chapter 21 of 1 Nephi? That if you're the prey and the predator is mighty, there's no deliverance, mm, unless the Lord is your deliverer. If you're a lawful captive, then you deserve to be in prison. You're not going to get delivered from that either. Well, unless your deliverer is the Lord. And that's exactly how it is. So in verse 17, he says, The mighty God shall deliver his covenant people. It's those covenant people that believe in him, that follow him, that hold to him, that not only want to be gathered, but want to gather others. And thus, the mighty God himself will come to their rescue. Chapter 7 then follows, immediately on the heels, there's no breakup in the original. Uh, and with this, Jacob then turns the page from Isaiah chapter 49 to Isaiah chapter 50. He's not done here. This is another message of reassurance to people that have felt forgotten and forsaken. Exactly what his little community would have felt in leaving the land of their first inheritance. Verse 1 from Isaiah, Yea, for thus saith the Lord, have I put thee away, or have I cast thee off forever? For thus saith the Lord, Where is the bill of your mother's divorcement? To whom have I put thee away, or to which of my creditors have I sold you? Now these are amazing questions. The people are feeling forsaken. They're feeling like they've been put away, feeling like they've been cast off. I mean, they have been cut off from the tree trunk, after all, right? 
But the way the Lord is asking the question, it's like, oh, you feel like I divorced your mother and that's why you're an, or an orphan? You've been abandoned? Well, show me. Show me. Where is the bill of your mother's divorcement? You feel like I've sold you to my creditors? That I'm in, I'm in a debtor's prison and the only hope that I have to pay off my bills is to sell my children into servitude? Come on now. <laughs> Who does God owe? Think about it in, in those terms. That's why the Lord says in response to that question, Behold, for your iniquities have ye sold yourselves, and for your transgressions is your mother put away. You understand that this is a really important verse to, for the rest of this chapter to make sense. You're feeling forsaken. Well, I know what you mean. Because I feel forsaken by you. You feel like I've abandoned you. That you are the, the lonely child wondering why would dad divorce mom and leave us parentless. Why would dad, because of his debts, sell us into indentured servitude? And the Lord is saying, I didn't sell you. Again, I don't owe, I'm God. I don't owe anyone anything. I, I have no creditors. But you've sold yourselves to an adversary that will pay nothing for you. I've paid with my own life's blood to redeem you from your, your self-imprisonment. So please understand that if you are feeling abandoned, it's because you've turned your back on me, not me turning my back on you. Show me the divorce papers. In some ways, you served them to me, and I refused to sign I will not give up on you. Remember how the previous chapter ended. The mighty God will deliver his covenant people. And I will keep my covenant. I'll keep you in a covenant relationship until you come to your senses and realize that you need to keep your part of the covenant as well. In a way, forgive me for getting too personal here. When my wife and I were dating and I wanted to marry her so bad and she did not feel the same yet. Uh, oh, it, it was a long process. I proposed for seven months. And I remember once I was washing the dishes and throwing myself a little pity party as I wondered to myself, why doesn't she love me the way I love her? And right then, before I had time to, to again, throw another round of the pity party, the Spirit whispered, ah, you finally know how I feel. And that was a wake-up call. When will I love God as much as God loves me? And that's what Jacob is getting at here through Isaiah. You divorced me. I didn't divorce you. You sold yourself. I would never sell you. I bought you with a price, as Paul says. That's what he gets at in verse 2. Wherefore... And that's a why question. See, God has some questions of his own. You've asked me questions in verse 1. I've got some questions for you in verse 2. Why? Wherefore, when I came, there was no man. Or when I called, yea, there was none to answer. Oh, house of Israel, is my hand shortened at all that it cannot redeem? Or have I no power to deliver? 
Again, rhetorical questions there. And the answer is no, a resounding no. You think I have no power to deliver? No, absolutely not. I can deliver the lawful captives. I can deliver the prey from the mighty predator. You just have to come unto me. You have to keep the covenant relationship, and I will come to your rescue every single time. The question is, will you come to me when I call? Do you understand his questions? Let me rephrase them, because I, the Isaiah passed through King James uh, translators. The syntax is tricky. Wherefore, when I came, there was no man. Let me rephrase it. When I came, why wasn't anyone there? When I called, why didn't anyone answer? My favorite time of day when I was a young father was coming home, was the moment I came home from, from work. Because my kids knew about what time I'd get home from teaching seminary. And there was a big picture window in the living room and I would just drive up the driveway and I'd see these two little heads of my first and second child just looking out the window and kind of bouncing up and down. Uh, my favorite primary song was, I'm so glad when daddy comes home. Oh, that's, that's a sacred song to me. And to picture those two cute little toe heads so thrilled to see daddy and I'd scoop them up and we'd just play and I miss those days. Now, when I come home, I understand what, Isaiah, what the Lord is getting at through Isaiah. When I come home, nobody's looking out the window. Nobody's bouncing up and down. Nobody's, well, unless they need money. Uh, then they're waiting and they're glad when daddy comes home. But for the most part now, they've got their own lives and they're doing their own things. And it's, it's a lonely feeling that the Lord himself understands. To call your children and and they don't pick up they must have caller ID and they see and they're like oh dad I, I just don't feel like reconnecting this is cats in the cradle that song uh, on a cosmic level and it's God himself when are you gonna come home son I don't know when but we'll get together then and a father who feels abandoned. Unlike the song, he never abandons his children along the way. The problem is they might feel that way because of being scattered for their own sins. They're projecting their weakness upon the Almighty God. They're saying, it's, it can't possibly be my fault. I don't want to look in the mirror and realize that for my own sins, I've sold myself. No, let me put that at the, at the feet of God and say, you abandoned me in the moment I needed you most. It's like, oh, I was right there. And all you had to do was turn around. You were facing in the wrong direction because you were going in the wrong direction. Come to me. I'm always here. That's what Isaiah is saying in these verses. Now, God sends his servants, but will we treat them any better than we've treated the God who sent them in the first place? That's the question in verse 4, 5, and 6. Isaiah says, The Lord God hath given me the tongue of the learned, that I should know how to speak a word in season unto thee, O house of Israel. Now, here's the prophet telling us what we need to hear when we need to hear it. But do we want to listen? That's the question. He will speak a word in season, exact right moment, right time. Uh, sometimes we eat fruit out of season. Well, God never gives us a word out of season. In fact, in the book of Isaiah, he gives us justice before the scattering and mercy after the scattering. 
Isaiah 1 through 39, it's justice all the way through. 40 through the end, it's mercy, tender mercy. Not to say, I told you so and rub it in, but rather there's still hope for you to come home. So there's a prophet speaking as one with the tongue of the learned, speaking words in season. And here's some of those words. When ye are weary, he waketh morning by morning. So you Israelites, you might be tired. Your God isn't. He's wide awake. Remember the psalmist, he watching over Israel slumbers not nor sleeps. He waketh mine ear to hear as the learned. I guess I was a little sleepy too, even as a prophet. So he woke me up. He woke my ear. He whispered these words of reassurance to me. The Lord God hath opened mine ear. I was not rebellious, neither turned away back. And then notice this subtle shift where the prophet becomes the personification of the Savior himself. Prophets are meant to embody what Christ is going to be. Isaiah himself was told, you and your family are going to be for signs and for, for wonders to bear witness of me, your children's names and so on, the way you live your life. Well, notice this one as the metaphor shifts from prophet to Messiah himself. I gave my back to the smiter and my cheeks to them that plucked off the hair. I hid not my face from shame and spitting. Now, on one level, there's a prophet being willing to be made a laughingstock. But on a higher level, a deeper level, there's the Savior willing to become the suffering servant, willing to become the crucified Christ. No, he did not hide his face from shame or spitting. That's actually what initiates and allows for, it's what enables the spiritual gathering. And once you can come to understand this suffering servant, once you can understand this meek Messiah who laid down his life for me, this lamb without blemish, oh, no wonder I want to come running and having spiritually been gathered home to him, physically I want to come home too. And so I can. Now, Isaiah will then express his faith in God his determination to stand firmly on God's side, no matter what the enemy might bring. So he says in verse 7 through 9, For the Lord God will help me, therefore shall I not be confounded. Therefore have I set my face like a flint. How's that for, for strong? Just I'm in your face, nothing. I'm not going to back down in front of anybody. I don't care if the, if the predator is mighty. I'll never be your prey. The Lord will deliver me every time. So I'm going to set my face like a flint. I know I shall not be ashamed. The Lord was willing to take that shame. He didn't hide his face from it. But because he was willing to suffer the shame, I won't have to eternally. I will not be ashamed. The Lord is near. He justifieth me. And as a result, notice Isaiah's rhetorical question. Who will contend with me? This is the little brother that finally has the courage to face the bully because he's got his big brother with him. Okay, It's like, yeah, you might, you might take me down. I'm scared to death of you on my own, but I'm not on my own. Who will contend with me? Let us stand together. Who is mine adversary? Let him come near me. I will smite him with the strength of my mouth. Can you picture Isaiah here? Those are fighting words. But it's not prideful self-confidence. 
No, this is faithful trust in God. So bring it on. He's throwing down the gauntlet. Let's stand together. Come on, come at me right now. For the Lord God will help me. And all they who shall condemn me, behold, all they shall wax old as a garment, and the moth shall eat them up. Oh, the Lord's enemies, they're nothing. They're the stuff of mothballs. <laughs> Pack it away. It, it's where moth and rust doth corrupt. Ah, no, if, if worldly wealth goes that way, then worldly worries should go that way too. I have not, especially for an over-anxious Jacob, talk about words of reassurance. If God is with me, who can stand against me? If the Lord is my friend, why fear any foe? Then, verse 10 and 11, Who is among you that feareth the Lord, that obeyeth the voice of his servant, that walketh in darkness and hath no light? There again is a rhetorical question. Isaiah is a master of them. He's asking, if you fear the Lord in, a, in the right way, you revere him, if you obey the voice of his servants, you do what prophets have said, do you really think you're going to walk in darkness? That you're going to have no light? No, you're following the light of the world. A brilliant illumination. So no, that's not going to be your problem. Here's what the, where the problem might arise. Behold all ye that kindle fire. And so you're not walking in the light of the Lord. You're trying to kindle your own. I don't want to do it the Lord's way. I certainly don't want to follow a prophet's illumination. Nope, I'm going to kindle my own fire. Well, the way Isaiah puts it, guess what you're doing? That compass yourselves about with sparks. <laughs> That's as much as you can muster. You're trying to build some blazing bonfire to light your way. <laughs> Good luck with that. Speaking of flint, my face was the flint, but now you've got a little flint and steel and you're trying to start a fire, it's, nothing's igniting. And all you have to show for your efforts are sparks that flash into existence and then flash right out of it and you're left in the same darkness that you began in. Well, that's your choice. Walk in the light of your fire and in the sparks which ye have kindled. This shall ye have of mine hand. You shall lie down in sorrow. What an amazing way to end that chapter. Oh, this kind of note of caution at the end. Justice peeking back around from behind mercy to say, uh, if you don't take the mercy, I'll be here waiting for you. If you don't accept the Lord's light, well, <laughs> how's the, how are those sparks working out for you? So, sadly, we see people all around us settling for self-made sparks. When the light of the world is offering his illumination. When I was a little kid and I was supposed to be asleep, I, would, I wanted to keep reading. And so I would hide under my blanket or put my book on the floor and put my head down through between the, the crack, between the bed and the wall. And the only light that I could use that wouldn't alert my parents, I used my watch light. And this is, this is the old school, you old, you old folks like me. You remember those days where you had a watch that had a little button on the side where you could turn the light on and it just illuminated the face of the watch. But I would take that and kind of aim it at the book and kind of move it back and forth across the page. I'm surprised I still have any eyesight left. Uh, it, it, it was a spark, that's it. And if we're content with that, well, we will lie down in sorrow because we're essentially walking in darkness. 
allowing for our own mists to cloud our vision of the tree of life when the light of the world is inviting us to come unto him. Do you get a sense of what that chapter, Isaiah chapter 50, was all about? Uh, if you feel abandoned, look inward and you'll see the culprit. Don't look at me. I'm waiting with arms outstretched. Just come. We then pivot to 2 Nephi chapter 8, which is Isaiah chapter 51. And then a little sprinkling, the first two verses of Isaiah 52. Remember, Jacob just can't end this. He can't stop. He's on a roll, and I'm glad he is, because keep, keep, keep the Isaiah coming. Okay, every, more, every word is reassuring. Help me understand where I'm coming, where, where I am now, things which are, where I can go from here, things which will be. Help me liken these words unto myself that I might have hope for me and for my family. Well, keep the hope coming. Uh, verse 1 of chapter 8, slash Isaiah 51. Hearken unto me, ye that follow after righteousness. So you're not following after your sparks. You're actually trying to come into the light of the world. But how do you do that when you're feeling forgotten and forsaken? How do you do that when you're in your scattered state? Well, here's a good way to start. Look unto the rock from whence ye are hewn, and to the hole of the pit from whence ye are digged. And in case that's too vague or symbolic, let me make it crystal clear. What rock am I talking about? What pit are you supposed to look to? Well, look unto Abraham, your father, and unto Sarah, she that bare you, and why look to them? Well, think about it. You, you think they felt forsaken and forgotten? Uh, having been given the promise of posterity and then decades passing with no, nothing to show for it? Oh, they know what it's like to feel scattered from a God of promises. Promises that never seem to come true. But look to them. And what will you see? Notice the last line of verse 2. For I called him alone. And blessed him. Yeah, I blessed him, even though the blessings came later than he had expected or assumed. If you're feeling forgotten, look back to Abraham and Sarah. They know what that feels like. But they also came to realize that the blessings of the Abrahamic covenant are worth the wait. If you're struggling in solitude, wondering when you'll ever find an eternal companion, it's worth the wait. If you're struggling with infertility, wondering when posterity will ever come, it's worth the wait. If you're struggling with loved ones who are wandering and you are wondering when they'll come home, it's worth the wait. The, you only have I called. God isn't re reserving those blessings for someone not named you. You're part of this chosen people, this covenant group. And Abraham and Sarah were blessed. So will we be. We just have to continue faithful. So notice the promise in verse 3. The Lord shall comfort Zion. He will comfort all her waste places. And yes, that's what you are feeling right now. Feels like you're living in desert. Well, just wait to see what it will become once the living water starts to flow. Isaiah says, he will make her wilderness like Eden and her desert like the garden of the Lord. Joy and gladness shall be found therein. Thanksgiving and the voice of melody. There's a complete reversal of fortunes there. You went from wilderness to Eden? 
We were cast out east of Eden. We were cut off from the tree of life. And yet, what does the atonement do? It reverses the fall. What does the gathering do? It reverses the scattering. And so that wilderness, that lone and dreary waste that you're in, oh, just wait for some inspired irrigation. And when the living water begins to flow, it will look like the Garden of Eden with trees of life forming whole forests for the faithful. Your desert will look like the Garden of the Lord. Oh, you wonderful saints in Arizona and southern Utah and Nevada. I know that desert has its own unique beauty. But come on, even you could probably admit, looking like the garden of the Lord, mm, good times ahead. Joy and gladness instead of suffering and sorrow. Thanksgiving instead of bitterly wondering where God is in all of this. Melody in a major key instead of songs of lament in a painful minor. That's the promise Isaiah is making to us. It's the promise Jacob is giving us. If you are feeling like you're in the desert or the wilderness, just wait. Hold out hope. The mighty one of Israel is coming to deliver us. You see promises and reassurances and encouragement all throughout this chapter. Here's a handful of phrases. I will make my judgment to rest for a light for the people. No sparks there. That was verse 4. Or verse 5. My salvation is gone forth. It's on its way. Just wait. Or verse 6. My salvation shall be forever and my righteousness shall not be abolished. Oh, it's your sorrow that's going to be abolished. It's your suffering that isn't forever. The good times will be. Or verse 7. Fear ye not the reproach of men. Or verse 8, my righteousness shall be forever and my salvation from generation to generation. Yes, including your generations, your children, your grandchildren. The Lord will take their salvation seriously. He'll take their gathering personally. You want to talk about the arms of kings and the shoulders of queens. Well, look no further than heavenly parents who care infinitely for your children. Well, Isaiah, it does an interesting thing here then in verse 9 and 10. Because after all these words of reassurance from God to the people, Isaiah then turns back and gives his own words of reassurance to God. <laughs> interesting. Verse 9, awake, awake, put on strength, O arm of the Lord. He's not telling us to wake up. He's telling God to wake up. Not that God is sleeping. Remember? He, Isaiah already clarified that in the previous chapter. Okay? So what does he mean by awake, awake? To awake as in the ancient days. Isaiah here is reminding God of who he is. Which is pretty wild. Art thou not he that hath cut Rahab and wounded the dragon? Art thou not he who had dried the sea and the waters of the great deep? that hath made the depths of the sea a way for the ransom to pass over? Isn't that you? Think about what you did in your younger years. <laughs> Think about the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. 
Think about what he did in the, well, think about what you did. Again, Isaiah is addressing the Lord here. What you did in the Exodus? Oh, that was epic. They're going to make movies about that in the future. And it's all about you, Jehovah. The God of Israel. You, you wounded the dragon. This is, oh, creation calming the chaos of, of the waters. This is Leviathan being caught in God's net. Like, like it's just a little, little guppy. This is behemoth. These are the, the wild sea monsters of the deep. The stuff of Israelite and Canaanite imagination. And God has defeated them all. It's like telling an aged King David, don't you remember what you did with Goliath? <laughs> That's you. That blood is still coursing through your veins. Now, what makes this all odd is that Isaiah seems to be giving God a pump-up speech. And does God need that? Well, no. God knows who he is and who he was and who he always will be. Same yesterday, today, and forever. So what's Isaiah doing here? Well, I think he and God are kind of winking at each other through this conversation in hopes that Israel is overhearing. God, you know, you know who you are. I mean, you remember what you did and you picture Israel like, oh yeah, that is what he did. He did pull up Leviathan on the line. He did, he did free our ancestors. He blessed Abraham and Sarah. He, he freed the slaves. He took on Pharaoh. He, yeah. Why should I fear? Why should I trust myself and not trust him? In some ways, this reminds me of the brother of Jared when he comes up with his ingenious plan to make stones illuminate those barges. And he comes to the Lord and explains the plan and then says to him, Lord, thou canst do this. Again, I don't think he's pumping up the, the Lord. <laughs> He's not telling God something he doesn't already know, but he's telling God what he knows. I know that thou canst do this. It's my faith. And, I, and I'm placing that faith in your strength. So I remember who you are and who you've always been. Verse 11 then, Therefore the redeemed of the Lord shall return. There's the therefore. Because I know who God was and is and forever will be, he said he'd bring us home, bank on it. The redeemed shall return. In fact, they'll come with singing unto Zion. There's that thanksgiving and the voice of melody he said a few verses ago. With everlasting joy and holiness, that's what shall be upon their heads. And they shall obtain gladness and joy. Sorrow, mourning, shall flee away. You want to talk about good days ahead? There's the promise from the Lord. After all, verse 12, I am he. Or as he'd said to Moses, who was wondering about a forgotten people, I am that I am. I am he. Such a powerful self-identification. I know who, you, who I am. You, everything you said to me, Isaiah, wink, wink, nudge, nudge. Yes, I'm that guy. I'm that God. I am he. I am he that comforteth you. And now that I've confirmed who I am, let me ask who you are. Behold, who art thou? That thou shouldst be afraid of man who shall die? 
and of the Son of Man who shall be made like unto grass? Are you serious? Do you know who I am? Do you know who you are? Grass in Israel was fleeting, that's for sure. And with a, a rain, which came only occasionally, it would sprout and spring up, but then it would all wither away and die when the heat of the sun returned. That's where Jesus got the idea in the parable of the sower. And so looking at your enemies, the people who have scattered you, these world superpowers like Assyrians or Babylonians, <laughs> it's grass. And you should see me mow the lawn. <laughs> you should see me send the sun because that worldly strength will wither and you'll be able to return with songs of rejoicing. No wonder then, verse 17, awake, awake. And this time he's not, <laughs> he's not rousing a, an already awake God. He's trying to get a slumbering nation to arise. This is what Lehi was saying to Laman and Lemuel, right? Arise from the dust, my sons, and be men. Awake and arise. Well, here's the call to us all. Here's the prophet's alarm clock. Awake, awake, stand up, O Jerusalem, which has drunk at the hand of the Lord the cup of his fury. There's the justice side. You already took that, and it, you took it upon yourself because you did it to yourself, okay? You sold yourselves to captors like the Babylonians, like the Assyrians. As a result, thou hast drunken the dregs of the cup of trembling wrung out. And remember, it was Jesus that accepted the bitter cup and drank it to the dregs. Here, ancient Israel drank it themselves because they refused to hand it over to the Lord. He they wouldn't let him suffer for them, their sins. They, rather, they preferred to suffer for their own. That's ironic. Well, having drunk that, notice the next few verses. And none to guide her among all the sons she hath brought forth neither that taketh her by the hand of all the sons she hath brought up. I used a, a fatherly analogy a moment ago about coming home from work and nobody singing, I'm so glad when daddy comes home. Well, if that's the lament of an old father, well, what's the lament of an old mother? Where are my sons? When I need them. I wasted and wore out my life in raising my children. And now that I have no more strength for them or myself, will they return to reciprocate? Will they come home to lift the hands that hang down and strengthen the feeble knees? Can you picture an aged mother wondering that? Where are my boys strong enough to help me in my old age? Well, we're going to get some answers in the next two verses. But the way we read them in the Book of Mormon is different than what we see in the King James Version of Isaiah. It's really interesting because it, it answers the question in, a, in an interesting way. The, remember the last question that was asked, where are my sons? Uh, do I have any? The, the way Isaiah put it, none are there. Among all the sons you've raised, not a single one is coming back to help you. But then notice this. We'll have to go through it. I'll try to walk you through it slowly so it's clear what we're, what we're missing. Verse 19, these two sons, and the King James Version simply says these two things. 
The things there is in italics, which means there was no word there in the original Hebrew, and the King James translators had to stick something in to make it make sense. Otherwise, it would just be these two. And they weren't sure exactly what those two were, so they just clarified it with things, which eh, doesn't clarify much. These two things are going to do something? Well, what are the things? The Jacob's version of this makes it clear. These two sons. And that makes sense because that's what Isaiah was just talking about. Where are my sons? Are, are none going to come back and help me? And the way Jacob refers, or the way Jacob reads Isaiah on the brass plates, well, you do have two sons. At least those two will come to your aid. It says, these two sons are come unto thee, who shall be sorry for thee. They're going to recognize what it feels like to be an aged parent that needs some help from the rising generation. So yes, they'll feel pity. They'll feel compassion. Thy desolation and destruction, the famine and the sword. By whom shall I comfort thee? Well, here's the answer to that question. Thy sons have fainted, save these two. And that phrase, those three words, are missing from the King James Version of Isaiah. So it's just, yep, thy sons have fainted. That's it. They're gone. There's no hope for you. But the way the Brass Plates Version of Isaiah reads, and the way Jacob is quoting it, oh, no, 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 you do have these two. These two that are sorry for thee. These two that want to comfort thee. These two that have refused to faint. They lie at the head of all the streets as a wild bull in a net. They are full of the fury of the Lord, the rebuke of thy God. Now that's, that's some strong language. Everyone else is asleep. Oh, these guys are awake. All the other sons are slumbering, but these two are like bulls in the net. Oh, I don't, I don't know if that net's going to hold. Now, who on earth could this be referring to? In the book of Zechariah, chapter 4, we learn about two olive trees that are meant to represent the two anointed ones. Remember, anointed with oil. What kind of oil? Olive oil. Ah, so the olive trees are the anointed ones. And there's two of them. Who gets anointed in the Old Testament? Well, typically kings and priests do. Huh, so who's our king of kings and lord of lords? Who's our our eternal king and our high priest of good things to come. Well, beyond that, uh, John, in the book of Revelation, draws upon that symbolism in Zechariah 2 in prophesying about two anointed ones, two prophets, who come to Jerusalem. This is Revelation chapter 11. Who come to Jerusalem in this period of chaos, of destruction and desolation and famine and sword. And in fact, they get caught in the net. They're killed. But after three and a half days, they come roaring back to life. Can you picture the bull in the net, ready to cut its way through with those iron horns? Oh, you can't keep these ones down. They're full of the fury of the Lord. These two sons of Israel among a slumbering, a bunch of slumbering siblings, these prophets that refuse to stay down. Now, there, there's some, something powerful about these promises. And like we studied in Revelation 11 last year, they can be specific, and there's two prophet seers and revelators that are there. Or it could be more symbolic that there are Zerubbabel's and Joshua's 
kings and priests that were instrumental in the first return from Babylon. And therefore, people like them will need to be equally instrumental in returning us from Babylonian bondage in the latter days. The gathering of Israel will come because certain sons and certain daughters refuse to stay asleep, refuse to faint, refuse to lose compassion for the rest of the family, and therefore, like bulls in the net, will break out of that net and then turn it loose to gather the rest of the family home. How's that for all kinds of mixed metaphors? <laughs> oh, it's amazing what Isaiah is painting here. It's a masterpiece. Well, with his true servants on his side then, the Lord will take things into his own hands. He will save Israel from, his, from their enemies. So how is Israel supposed to react? Verse 24 and 25 is the new chapter in Isaiah 52. These last two verses of this discourse are the first two, two verses of Isaiah 52. And, and I'm so glad that, I, that Jacob didn't want to end at what we have as our arbitrary, arbitrary chapter break. Because it's been crescendo, crescendo, and here's the final climax. You want the symbol crash. And these two verses come at the beginning of Isaiah 52. By the way, it's Isaiah 52 that Abinadi will quote and that Jesus will quote. The Book of Mormon presents an incredible relay race of one prophet passing the Isaiah baton to the next prophet and the next and so on. And Nephi began with Isaiah 48 and 49, and then passed the baton to Jacob, who quoted 49 and 50 and 51 in the beginning of 52, and passed the baton to Abinadi, who quotes 52 again, and then passes the baton to Jesus, who quotes 52, and then skips 53, interesting, to quote 54. We'll see that in 3 Nephi, uh, months and months from now. That's a long relay race, but the thread of Isaiah is woven throughout the Book of Mormon's tapestry. And it's a golden line from start to finish. Well, how does it end? Awake, awake. We keep getting these alarm clock wake-up calls. Put on thy strength, O Zion. Put on thy beautiful garments, O Jerusalem, the holy city. For henceforth there shall no more come into thee the uncircumcised and the unclean. Shake thyself from the dust. Arise, sit down, O Jerusalem. Loose thyself from the bands of thy neck, O captive daughter of Zion. I love that passage. Evidently Jacob did too. What are we going to do in all this? I wonder if he's looking around his people and sensing some slumber, some sleepiness. Oh, my beloved brethren, as he always calls them, can we arise from the dust in ways that Laman and Lemuel refused to? Can we put on our strength? Can we wear the beautiful garments, the robes of righteousness, and the garments of praise? Can we Shake ourselves from the dust. Again, arise from the dust and be men. Be the kinds of sons and daughters that will come to the mother's rescue. 
When he says arise, sit down, it's like make up your mind. It's just stand up, sit down, fight, fight, fight. Uh, what, what is this? Well, have you ever been sitting and slouching for so long that oh, your, your pants are all bunched up and so you end up standing up so you can kind of straighten everything and dust yourself off and then you sit back down? You've gone from slouching seat to regal throne. Stand up, prepare myself, put on these beautiful garments, become one of those kings or priests or queens or priestesses that are intended by those two sons. And then rule and reign in the house of, of God forever. That's, that's a fully awakened Israel. And that's what Isaiah is calling for. To loose ourselves from the bands of our neck. Do you remember in, in excuse me, Doctrine and Covenant section 113? It's a chapter where Joseph Smith has all kinds of questions about Isaiah. He gravitated a lot to chapter 11, which makes sense since the angel Moroni quoted it to him when he was 17 years old. He's been chewing on that one ever since. And he wants to, make, wants to understand, well, what does this mean? And what is this symbol? And that reassures me that even the prophet needed help understanding Isaiah. But by the end of that little revelation, one of Joseph's friends named Elias Higby wants to get in on the action. And I always chuckle at this. I love it, actually, because it's like, wait, wait, God answers questions? Seriously? He helps us understand Scripture? Joseph, you, you've got God on the other end of the line? Hey, while you're asking questions, can you ask him one of mine? And, and I just love that seeing someone else ask questions encourages Elias to ask his own. And here's Elias' question. What, is, what does that verse mean? I know Joseph's questioning Isaiah 11. I'm more drawn to Isaiah 52. And I've always wondered what it means to awake and put on strength. I've wondered what these beautiful garments represent. I've wondered what the, the bands of the neck are. Joseph, would you mind kind of slipping in my questions while you're asking the Lord to address yours? And in verse 7 through 10 of DNC 113, the answers come. In verse 8, to put on her strength is to put on the authority of the priesthood, which she, Zion, has a right to by lineage, also to return to that power which she had lost, to wake up, as Isaiah said. And then in verse 10, How's this for a promise? The scattered remnants are exhorted to return to the Lord from whence they have fallen. You've been scattered physically because you allowed yourself to be scattered spiritually. If you'll return to God spiritually, he will return you to your land of promise physically. You see, which if they do, if they'll return to the Lord, the promise of the Lord is that he will speak to them or give them revelation. You see, it's that revelation that will guide them home. There's their own personal Leahona, their own Urim and Thummim. These chapters are incredible. Talk about rich material for Jacob to work with. And work with it he will. As we turn the page to chapter 9 and turn from the first half of this lesson to the second, we are going to watch Jacob take everything he just brought out of Isaiah. Remember, no two-and-a-half-minute talk there. <laughs> Three whole chapters walking us through the physical, 
and spiritual gathering of Israel, despite the fact they felt forgotten and forsaken, how's it all going to happen? Just wait. And thus we see. And chapter 9 and chapter 10 will explain it all in incredible ways. As we turn to that, please keep Isaiah in mind. Keep your own sense of loss and abandonment close to the heart so that emotionally the Lord can reassure you. How's he going to do it? Well, as Jacob draws upon Lehi's help to make sense of Isaiah, we are going to see, as promised, that it is the mighty one of Israel that will deliver us.